Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Vezel Talks podcast. I'm your co-host, Stefan Katanik, and today I have with me my good friend, Urban Velader from the European Blockchain Association. Urban, welcome to the Vezel Talks podcast. Hey, Stefan. Thanks for having me, and very glad to be here. Anytime, man. You know, we're, we go back a long, long, long time. Yes, sir. Very way back from Toronto, and here we are now in Belgrade, Serbia, recording a Vezel Talks podcast. Why don't you give us a quick introduction to who you are, maybe how we know each other, Sure. And then from there, we'll, we'll show the world what you're about. Sure. So, uh, I mean, I got my start in the, uh, in the blockchain space, actually, because this guy here roped me into it uh, in about 2016. And we've been friends since when, about 2008, I'd say. Yeah, we've known each other. There. Yeah. So uh, in, in the startup scene, and, uh, and then I started to focus a little bit more on regulation. I moved back to Europe. Uh, I started working for the European Commission as an economist. And then I lateraled over to the European Central Bank, where I was also an economist. And uh, last November, I joined the European Blockchain Association as head of policy. And in a nutshell, I could say my job is coordinating on research and advocacy between the Web3 community and uh, public institutions, obviously in the EU, but also increasingly internationally now in the MENA region, APAC, in the US, etc. Amazing. You know, I've always had an interest in blockchain, as you know, and but more importantly is like the crypto use cases sure. around it, right? And I know you, you know it better than anyone that I know, right? And you're one of the smartest guys I know, and you're like the perfect person for this role, you know, and heading that policy stuff. So, you know, Recently, there's been a lot of talk around central-backed digital currencies, right? Mm -hmm. From Canada, the United States, the European region, the Middle East, all of that. So what is it? You know, And there's a lot of questions and misconceptions around what really it is. Yes, it's it can be an easy form of payment. It can be an easy form of tracking. But what's the surveillance about it? You know, like There's obviously an yeah. aspect of surveillance and governments looking into how you're spending your money. Does this go into like you know them checking your credit score and it's completely tied to your credit score? Talk to us about that and like help us leave the air of, of some of the the sure. misconceptions. Yeah. So I mean to start with, I guess the term central bank digital currency, um, it's it's kind of like a like a taxonomy. So it's kind of like a grouping of different kinds of of central bank digital currency. So you have things that are called direct. CBDCs or central bank digital currencies, which are basically you have an account directly with the central bank, then you have direct, uh, then you have indirect CBDCs retail, right, where there's an intermediary in between that would like open up the KYC and do the AML checks. And that's where you would actually have your account. And then it would be pre-funded, for example. Then you have what are called wholesale CBDCs. And wholesale CBDCs are, are not what you and I would use typically like to pay for coffee yeah. or to buy sandwich or to pay for a plane ticket. Wholesale CBDCs are more so for large value and volume transfers between like financial institutions and those kind of intermediaries, also for the purposes of cross-border payments and, and, and remittance settlement. And then you have what are called synthetic CBDCs. And synthetic CBDCs could be things like a commercial bank money token. So for example, if a commercial bank tokenized its deposits, it's a synthetic CBDC. Then you have things called trigger solutions. Trigger solutions in a European context would be like building a distributed ledger substrate on top of the European Central Bank's target to um, instant settlements, right? So it's like you take an existing central bank infrastructure that's on TradFi rails, and then you would build the DLT substrate on top of that. So when you say CBDC, it's really important to say exactly what kind of CBDC and for what purpose, because when you're paying for something or when there's value being exchanged, there's always the question of for who, to whom, how much, and why, right? So these things are really important to consider. In terms of the kind of the situation in the world right now, you have roughly around central banks representing, I think it's like 90% of global GDP. 
that are either researching, um, piloting, or in a proof of concept, for example, with regards to either a retail or a wholesale CBDC. So these things are definitely coming, and some of them have already launched. The most prominent example of that is China's uh, ECNY or digital yuan, right? Then you also have the Central Bank of Nigeria, which has launched the Inera. You have Project Sand Dollar in the Bahamas. Uh, the European Union is is currently um, investigating the digital euro and will likely announce the implementation phase of the digital euro uh, in October of this year. So what are we looking at? Like, when is it going to be an everyday thing? That's a hard question to answer because in some countries, it's already in the payment system. Yeah. Um, India also has the digital rupee that they're testing on their um, unified payments uh, network, right? Their UPI, which is super complicated and it's across the entire country and it's really interesting to see how when you have this payment medium that's accepted by so many people how you can just integrate uh, a cbdc into that um i think that you also have to ask yourself which central bank in what region is doing it why so in the case of a retail cbdc um countries that have like weaker monetary policy and fiscal policy, so countries that don't really have a, a grasp over the way that they conduct their public finances, and, and let's say they have probably a more of a democratic deficit, um, they might choose to launch CBDCs for the purposes of financial inclusion because they also have a very large unbanked population. In advanced economies, like for example in the European Union or in the United States, a CBDC on the retail side would be, or might be launched for the reasons of payments efficiency or financial efficiency. So to, to, like, to operationalize that last bit of value that can be sucked out. Mm-hmm. How, how do, now how does this interact with, obviously there's a lot of financial crime involved with crypto and there's mm-hmm. a misconception of how money is moving, why certain people are paying with crypto as opposed to cash or bank transfers. How does CBDCs, how do they fight against that? Like well, what are the risks we're looking at? Well, a retail CBDC could give the government several instruments for the purposes of tracking financial transactions for uh, anti-money laundering and and know your customer reasons. You could directly tax consumers um, at the point of each point of sale transaction with the the retail CBDC if if it was designed that way. Um, If a CBDC was programmable, then you could also attach political conditions to the spending. And Mm -hmm. what I mean by that is, let's say that you receive government uh, welfare payments for being uh, in, a, in, in a low-income situation, and the, the government could tie the fact that you cannot spend those those welfare checks on uh, on alcohol or on cigarettes on things of this nature that you have to spend it towards food or if you have kids yeah. to take care of your kids. Yeah. Um, the uh, Monetary Authority of Singapore, which is like Singapore Central Bank, has been testing something called um, Project Orchid. And Project Orchid is what they're defining as purpose-bound money. So by purpose-bound, I mean money that has conditions. The other side of the programmable coin, pun intended, is that programmability doesn't necessarily have to be a bad thing. If you can, if you can move past the political conditions, which we all agree are horrible, programmability at the level of like a smart contract, if a CBDC was built with smart contract functions, um, could allow it to do some pretty amazing things, especially for the future of the machine economy and IoT payments, digital twins, and things of this nature. So it's it's kind of difficult to say whether or not CBDCs will be an effective means of payment. 
um, because a lot of that is going to depend on whether or not people actually want to use them. Yeah. Uh, and you know what? To tell you the truth, I'm very indifferent. What a part of me is saying, yeah, okay, it can be cool to use yeah. CBDCs and, and to buy everyday things. But at the same time, I, I think back of what happened in Canada with that trucker protest in Ottawa, how they basically froze everyone's accounts. Like that can give the government so much control over how we spend our money and where we spend our money and who we give our money to, you know? And so I'm really in that fine line of like, okay, I'm, I'm a big believer in cash is king. It always has been. I believe it, it will continue to be king. On the other side now, it's like, okay, if they have that much control on how you spend your dollars, it could be, you know, used politically because, you know, you're out protesting against certain conditions that you have to adhere by because you live in that country, right? And that's the risk that I see. And I, I believe that that change management going from like a cash society or like a Visa debit credit card society all the way to like a central bank using a central bank currency like the Canadian dollar or the USD that's backed on the, that. To me, it's like, you know, we're already pretty much digital. The change will be an easy change to go over to that. But it's like the psychology of people to accept the fact that there's so much insights into how they're spending their money. I think that's going to be the biggest challenge. Well, I mean, you have you have a, a few major hurdles to get over before you can get to this like so-called cashless society that that keeps propping up and in, in, in increasing in the literature as well, you know, that I've been reading. Yeah. The first one is the digital divide. Digital divide. So what What's I mean by what I mean by that is you have people existing today that are on completely different levels of the digital literacy spectrum. You have people that are, you know, really young that can spin up a MetaMask wallet, that know how to buy and sell, they know how to self-custody their own crypto assets, they know how to go on Tor servers, you know, they, they, they know how to scrape websites. Then you have people who don't even know how to turn on a computer yeah. and access an email yeah. or type in something into Google. So we, we have like polar opposites in our society. And, and yeah, you can make the argument that most people kind of sit somewhere in the middle, but in reality, to have a fully cashless society, 100% cashless society, that would have to predetermine that every single person was at least financially literate enough mm -hmm. to use these means of payment yeah. at the same level. So it sounds like it'll first start off in these like tech hub cities where people are more more inclined to actually use these digital services much faster than other places. Well, it'll it'll start off in places where people are more reared on technology. Yeah. Um, like what's interesting about Africa, for example, is that a lot of people in Africa across many different countries uh, don't have bank accounts. Yeah. Yet almost everyone uses mobile banking apps. Yeah. Like from M-Pesa onwards, right? Right. So they're And they're the thing really about weird. them is they skip the steps, you know, whereas yeah. like in the United States and Canada, we went bank accounts, to having an online bank account, to having a debit card, to having a Visa debit card. So we actually went through all the intricacies of having a, a, a stable financial system that led to this. Whereas in Nigeria and these places in Africa, they skipped steps because they actually didn't need to do that work in between because another nation did it and it worked for them. So they just went. But a lot of the skip. reasons they also skip steps is because they have governments that have serious democratic deficits, mm -hmm. high levels of corruption mm -hmm. and a big reason why those people are also unbanked is because the government was not able to provide the basic services right. to make people financially included. Right. And that's why we're seeing now billions of dollars being dumped into Africa. Yeah. They're investing in all these different fintech companies and it's growing so fast that, you know, I foresee it by 2030, 2035, we're going to see Africa be a completely different place than what we know of it right now. Right. Just by 
the amount of startups that are popping up there. You know, like I was reading this stat and and it was really interesting to me because, you know, you have all these VC firms that are created sub brands to invest specifically into Africa. Mm-hmm. For example, Digital Currency Group, they have a, a, a another company, Digital Currency Group Ventures or um, something like that, where they're just in, you, investing into African startups, all fintech companies, right? Yep. They're dumping money because they, they see what's happening there. They see that there's a lot of people there that are underbanked or unbanked at all. And then these new apps that are coming in, um, you know, they're helping people out. And here's the thing. Everyone's got one of these, mostly everyone, you know, um, despite not having access to, to other services, most people have a SIM card and a cell phone, you know, and I think yeah. that, you know, we're going to see a big rise in Africa. So question for you, when it comes to these central back currencies, who's the forerunner right now? Who's leading the charge? Well, I mean, of the largest projects that have launched, it's mm-hmm. definitely China. Definitely China, right? Yeah. So China, I mean, China's digital payments network, like well, the, no, e- WeChat, the ECNY, on WeChat. the ECNY on one side, but then Alipay and WeChat Pay on the other side, and these things are like omni-channel apps, right? Mm-hmm. They're they're super apps, and people in China use this from everything from booking a dentist appointment to paying for their groceries, and everything yeah. is so. The, the, the digital yuan is fungible across and into these these different applications. And then people also have separate PBOC, People's Bank of China, digital yuan wallets, right? What China is also doing now is it's increasingly starting to, bit by bit, you know, inch by inch, internationalize the ECNY for trade finance, right? Mm-hmm. What, what I mean by that is to settle, for example, LNG trades, like with Total Energies recently, in digital yuan, um, they're experimenting the the ways that they can use digital yuan or ECNY in the Belt and Road Initiative, right? Which is China's landmark yeah. landmark piece of in, call it industrial nation building. I mean, at this point, really, uh, and how they can integrate the ECNY with their BRI partners, right? And then you have the um, the European Union, uh, the Digital Euro Project. Um, Sweden has the e-krona as well because Sweden is not a, it's not a euro area. Yeah. Uh, country for purposes of your area cash right but it is an eu member state um you have countries in africa the central bank of kazakhstan has launched one uh an experimentation phase the british government is is um, looking into a digital pound um but really in terms of what's available on the ground now and has a, a head start it's china and what china is also doing is it's trying to establish standards and interoperability standards around its CBDC, right? So they're lobbying heavy in the International Telecommunications Union for standards around these kind of things, right? They're participating in the G20. They're participating also within their own sphere of influence, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, right? The SCO. And and uh, and I, I think that realistically, they'll probably be the farthest ahead once it's time to pull the trigger on on using these things for trade finance you know i wrote i wrote a chapter for a book recently and i was talking about how you can use a digital euro for those exact same purposes and you know our conversation about africa made me think about that because i said that i'm like this is the battleground really Mm -hmm. um and if the eu uh wants to take advantage of because the eu has global gateway global gateway is supposed to be like the democratic alternative to the belt and road initiative right the belt and road initiative the belt and road initiative is basically like it's it's debt conditioning finance right Mm -hmm. and it's 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 debt trap financing where you know china um, builds things for these countries. They take out massive loans on interest that they can't possibly repay, right? And then they fall into a debt trap. So what the EU is trying to do is the same thing, but in a more democratic way. Also promote um, 
democracy through this and, and, and infrastructure and things of this nature. You know, and I argued with my co-author that if you don't internationalize the digital euro for trade finance, I mean, you miss out on a huge opportunity to put the EU on a level footing. And also, if you go back to the um, 2018 communication by the European Central Bank on towards a greater international role for the euro, this is one way you achieve that. And you also maintain the EU's status as a reserve currency and things of this nature, right? So these are geo, these are like really wide geopolitical topics that we're discussing here. And, and the thing with geopolitics is it, it, it moves slowly until it moves suddenly, right? So things can kind of inch along for years and then finally snap. Yeah, so now it's simmering right now. All it is, basically. It's like when you put bike. a kettle, you know, you put a kettle on the pot and it yeah. hasn't started to steep yet. That's what's yeah. happening. But I, I should say that nobody is dethroning the dollar anytime soon. Mm -hmm. All of this talk you hear about mm -hmm. the the de-dollarization and the, the emergence of comp competing currencies and the role of the ECNY and all of this stuff, you have to remember mm -hmm. that if there are X amount of dollar denominated liabilities floating around in the world, that means that there are X amount of dollar denominated assets because right. my liability has to be your asset and, and vice versa on balance sheet, right? Yeah. And you have to ask yourself, which are the countries that are holding this as balance as an asset on their balance sheet? Mm -hmm. And realistically, China's biggest obstacle is that China does not have a liquid treasury market. Right. The United States can internationalize the dollar because they can internationalize the, 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 the U.S. treasuries and, and a global globally floating risk free rate. China can't do that. Yeah. Right. And the problem is holding the ECNY is that you're holding the ECNY. Mm -hmm. Right. It doesn't have the same full faith and confidence. That's why I think that all this stuff is still happening at the margins. But going back to my other point, inch by inch, inch by inch, and then suddenly with a flood. So if we want to maintain a world that is let's say geared more towards democratic capitalism and not authoritarian capitalism. And if we buy the argument that certain things that the Chinese government is doing with its CBDC with respect to social credit is probably not the lives that we want to live, mm -hmm. then we have to do something about it in terms of making sure that we also bring the tools to the table to, to compete that. on an yeah. equal footing because we're not playing by the so same rules. So how do you now, like, for example, obviously social credit system in, in, in China is a huge thing, mm -hmm. right? They built their economy on that. They, they manage all of their billions of people under that social credit system. There's talks of other countries doing it, you know? And so these other countries that want to integrate some sort of social credit system that is based on visual identity, when a camera scans your face, they know all the details about, about you, right? Like in that movie, Born, I think it was Born? Yeah, in Born. They scan your face. He knows your credit score, how much money you have in the bank, what your criminal record is, if you're an alcoholic, gambler, uh, where your next business trip is going to be or your next trip is planned out, right? How far are we from that? Like, is there talks of that? And does that integrate with crypto and the whole social credit system? Because I fully see it as it's like an integrated system, vertically and horizontally integrated into like a digital identity. So you have your digital identity, digital passport, what do you want to call it? That's your access to the financial markets, to travel, to moving around, to buying real estate, selling real estate, um, everyday things, purchases, right? How far are we from that? Because, you know, that has been a talk. And like you said, we're moving inch and inch towards that. And, and countries are now modeling after the Chinese system because they saw how China manages it, right? But, you know, I'm sure the Americans, when they look at it, they're, they're, they're thinking, oh, we can create a much better system, right? That's not as um, contrary to certain people's beliefs when it comes to what that system actually means, like in George Orwell. So, I mean, 
in the United States right now, you have certain state legislatures like Indiana and Florida, for example, which passed a ban on a retail CBDC yeah. within their state. So you're saying with retail CBDCs, they can't actually go and buy like a meme coin or Bitcoin well, or to buy everyday things. So this is the thing. Like unless a CBDC is built with smart contract functionality and unless a CBDC can be used as an on and off ramp into, yeah. into for example, like a DeFi ecosystem, it's not going to be used for that. Okay. And to be honest with you, why, why should it be? I mean, I'm of the mind that as long as we have stable coins mm -hmm. and I also believe in algorithmic stable coins, although I don't think we have all the bugs worked out there quite yet. But I think that in the future, you're going to have, you know, what I call digital currency areas. You're going to have stable coins, CBDCs, commercial bank money tokens, cryptocurrencies, and these things are going to float in some reluctant compromise with each other. And it's always wow. going to be a clash of public private money <laughs> yeah. to your, to your point on the social credit. Um, you know, you could you could make the argument that social credit could be in some way a lot of government's dream scenario um but fortunately we live in a society where to realize that at the level of what the what the chinese state has done is going to face enormous pushback from the population mm -hmm. um, we especially in the west uh grew up on a culture of privilege and entitlement in terms of having the freedom to do what we want when we want within obviously the bounds of the law. But um, we, we don't like having our rights taken away from us. And a lot of people fight for their rights to this very day, right? For various Absolutely. things. So I think that when you talk about social credit, it's really important to remember that you're, you're also talking about two different approaches to like the social political economy. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that that's easily transplanted into the West. On topic of digital identity, I can tell you that in, in Europe, at least in the EU, with the, um, with the EIDAS framework, so that's like Europe's digital identity uh, regulatory framework, which is now up for revision, um, you know, issues related to privacy are a fundamental concern for the EU. They want citizens to have control over their digital identity. They want citizens to have control over their data. They support the use of what are called verifiable credentials under the W3C standards, right? Decentralized identifiers. And, you know, they're gearing up to, to, uh, to create an EU digital wallet where citizens can hold these public credentials. But ultimately, it depends on how much information you want to share with somebody and for what reason. So also experimenting with things like zero-knowledge proofs, right? Keeping some of that data off-chain, on-chain, and making sure that those rights are protected. Um, I think that privacy is, is fundamentally a Western concern. And uh, in other places of the world, privacy doesn't really rank as important as payments efficiency or inclusion. So again, it, it, it depends on like what starting point are you coming from as a society? And then you base and calibrate around that. I do fear though that um, it's an attractive system to be able to track everybody. And the way that you look at some people discussing smart cities yeah, and the way that sensors are going to be used in smart cities and 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 that kind of technology, I I do fear that we run the risk of it being too tempting, and then somebody at some point finding a way to do it, because the one thing about China that you can say for sure is that Xi is going to be president for a long time, unless there's some extenuating circumstance, he's not going anywhere, but we have governments that roll over continuously in the West. So what one what one government might not be for, another government might be for. 
And that's the, that's the drawback of our, of our democratic process is that, you know, for now we might have politicians that say no social credit score. I can't tell you what's going to happen 15 years from now. So Erwin, how do you stay sharp? Because obviously you deal with a lot of pressure, you deal with a lot of politicians, you deal with a lot of dirty hands, clean hands, all kinds of people, man. So what are some of the things that you do to stay sane in this ever-changing environment and all the things that are going through your environment on a day-to-day basis? Well, uh, for starters, I have a, I have a beautiful fiance who helps keep me sane. Um, she takes care of all the things that I either don't have the time, energy, or effort to do after a busy day. So without her, I do not think that I would be able to uh, continue on as I am. Uh, I mean, physically speaking, you know, I, I try to stay fit. I mean, I think that especially in my line of work where I'm either caught between days that are full of meetings and and then I have in-person meetings with, with, with politicians and with companies and then I'm also doing a lot of reading, um, I sit for large periods of time. So to counteract the sitting, I run. I try to run every day or every other day. I try to do some calisthenics. You know, I used to be really, really big into yeah. that. I've kind of dialed it down a little bit now, but I, I still try to maintain. And then honestly, just eat as healthy as you can and no more than two cups of coffee a day. Nice, nice. The two cups of coffee, I gotta try that. You know, I'm still on my five to six a day. Jeez. It's been going pretty good. I can't, I can't complain. Five to six. Five to six. Look who we are. You know, it's, okay. <laughs> it's working for me. I use nicotine and caffeine as like my, my, your, your stimmers, my stimmers to help me get through the week, through the month, through the year, through the quarter, whatever you want to call it. You know? So for me, it's, um, I need that. And, and very similar to you, like I need to stay sane in my head. And, and for me, I, I take pride in my, my relaxation and like just being alone and just thinking, Sleep. Sleep is super Sleep. important. I have to get my eight hours. Yeah. Actually, last last night, I got a full eight hours sleep. I woke up. I was still thinking I'm at the cottage up north. Like a king. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Woke yeah, up yeah. feeling refreshed, brand new, you yeah. know, ready to crush a week and ready to absolutely crush this podcast with you. And, and yeah, I, th- I think it's super important for us to stay fit, especially look, look, we're, we're in our early 30s. We're young guns. We're up and coming. You know, I think um, in order to compete in today's market with our competitors that we have, it's like, you know, if you do one thing very good in your life, it's how you do everything else. Right. And so to be a well-rounded man, you gotta, you know, go to the gym, you gotta continue learning. You gotta have a good love life. You gotta have a good social life. Work is, is, is your outlet for all the creativity you get and all the relaxation and, and, and stimulants you get from outside of that. Right. And so I think we're also fortunate to, uh, to do something that we genuinely enjoy doing. I think a lot of people, you know, and I, I feel bad, but you know, a lot of people wake up every day and they're, and they're forced to do a job that they hate. Yeah. You know, I don't work a day in my life because honestly, exactly. I, I I really do love what I do. And I'll grind it out, man, 16, 17 yeah. hours a day if I have to. There's like those moments, not- you know, when it's crunch time, it's DEFCON 5. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you're in the trenches and you have to because there's there's yeah. deliverables that need to be met. But then um, you sit back after that and you're like, wow, like I really accomplished something here. And if, like, if you do enjoy what you do, if you're fortunate enough to find that. Mm-hmm. And I think that in this day and age with all the tools that we have available, Everybody is in a position if they just carve out a little bit of time for it yeah. to hopefully transition into that thing that they really want yeah. to do. And I hope that everybody does find it. That's the thing. You know, a lot of people are stuck in that repetitive loop of saying, oh, I got to go to work. I got to go. I got to drive home. I got to go to the gym. I want to start something new to get me out of this cycle, out of this matrix and enter something else, you know, but it's like, how do you find that time in the day that people have and people struggle with that, right? And okay, they might find time today, tomorrow. But the day after, it's a consistency thing, right? In order, some people aren't consistent. Like I know you, since, since I've known you since back in 08, you've been consistent at one thing. Whatever you apply your mind to, you go all in and you're consistent with it. Doesn't matter what it is. Everything that, that you touch, 
you're basically consistent with it. And I think a lot of people are missing that that piece because if it wasn't for consistency, let's be real, you and I wouldn't be on this podcast right now talking about central bank digital currencies. You know, no. we wouldn't be here in Belgrade, Serbia at, at our studio here at Vezov Digital that we created, you know, no. if it wasn't for consistency. Absolutely. I think that is the secret ingredient to everything. Well, in that life. and it's understanding that everything in life is about opportunity cost and opportunity costs are easily summed up. It's just give up over get. It's exactly. a fraction of give up over get. Yeah. What are you giving up and what are you getting for it? Right. Right. So do so, you do you apply that for everything? Your opportunity costs? I mean life is governed by opportunity costs. Right. If I if I choose to get one hour less of sleep, mm-hmm. if I'm giving up my one hour less of sleep that I know is valuable to me because I need my eight hours to function, mm-hmm. if I'm gonna sleep seven or if I'm gonna sleep mm-hmm. six, there better be a reason why I'm doing that. Mm-hmm. And how do you how do you measure that? It, like that measurement is subjective to what you consider the value of the opportunity that you're giving up to get. Okay, okay cool. So you're basically saying like, hey, I'm losing tonight. I'm getting seven hours of sleep instead of eight hours of sleep because that one extra hour, I'm going to go to the gym because I missed the day before. Or if there's something that I need to finish because I know I don't have time to do it the day, mm-hmm. the, the next day, I'll get it done because... I'm a natural procrastinator if I don't keep myself in check. Yeah. And I know that works sometimes, you know, you know, when you're under pressure and then you yeah, have yeah, a chance yeah. and sometimes sure. you do brilliant work. But in my line of work, I, I can't do that because yeah. things pile up so fast mm-hmm. and I have to keep up with reading and all of my other policy initiatives and clients and this and that and then still have time for a family life. Yeah. So I, I have to budget myself, which means that if I'm giving up something, there's got to be reason why I'm doing it and what am I getting for it I feel that I feel that I had a conversation a couple of weeks ago with uh, a member of my team and they, he asked me he's like Stefan how do you how do you do what you do like how do you actually do it you know and to me what I had to do a long time ago was take a step back like a mental mm-hmm. step back and trust my team members to delegate certain tasks that are with that have a clear instruction a clear objective what has to get done and a deadline you know and very early on, it was super hard for me to do that. You know, I couldn't, I couldn't get myself to like give up complete control of that task at hand because I knew what was dependent on it and like the results we we're trying to get. But once I just like took a step back and let go and let God and, you know, I trusted my team to go and execute, it got done, you know, but yeah. moving away from that, it's like, how do I get so much done? It's obviously being consistent in everything else outside of work, right? That applies to my work over here. And then, you know, just properly to managing my time. You know, I used to be a really hard time manager, right? Oh, but I that, remember. I remember back in the day, man. I remember you were Mr. Meeting Minutes, man. I yeah, Mr. That. Meeting Minutes, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so, and now today it's like, I manage my time so, like on a weekly basis, I have Mondays. Mondays are strictly days for, for money in, business development, and doing things like this, networking, right? And then Tuesdays are like, my days where I'm looking at inside the business, seeing what's going on. Wednesdays, Thursdays, that's on the business. Fridays is almost like a content day, free for yeah. all, talk to my team, see what's going on kind of thing. And and for me, it's like, I know now that I have to, now in, now we're in Q2, I know by Q3, I have different goals of me stepping, even taking out two steps back, right? Yeah. But in order to take two steps back, the team and I have to basically create some sort of infrastructure to go support that next level of growth and for, and for me, uh, the consistency piece is always conscious, you know, because like sometimes sure. I feel lazy. I don't feel like doing it, but like I know if I don't do it, I'm just taking a loan against my own time, you know. It's a good way to put it. And I got to like pay it back even yeah, more. Yeah, that's a good way know? to put it. You're taking a loan against your own time. It's very true. Um, I'll, I'll say for me that uh, very similar, although um, 
I don't have a massive team that I'm working with in terms of doing the policy work. Um, I do have a team and, and, and it's great. However, because a lot of what I do is, is politically client facing, like mm -hmm. I, mean, I can't call them clients, but politically facing, uh, it requires also that political capital cost. That political I, capital cost. Yeah, so Talk like, to me about that. So, what I mean, there, the work that we do at these kind of associations, and there's other ones out there, obviously, and for different purposes, for different things. But mm -hmm. um, on the lobbying side, you know, it's always high stakes. Yeah. If there's a law or regulation that's currently making its way through the legislative process, and there are things in that regulation or that law that could be really detrimental to the future of, of the digital asset space, um, then we don't really have a choice but to raise those issues because those issues carry an enormous economic and innovative cost, which is going to affect a lot of people. You know, because ultimately these rules, once they're binding in the EU, they're going to affect over 400 million people. So, and I had this from the other side when I worked in the public in the public sector. So when I worked for the commission, like you know, when you're when you're going over regulations and amendments and you're you're doing research. You're like, wow, like this is for the, like the citizen is the end consumer here. I have to do this for the citizen. I have to think about Main Street. You know, I can't just sit in my ivory tower. Like this has to be done in a way that the end user can, can get some sort of distributed benefit from it. Mm -hmm. And now I'm on the other side where I'm trying to, you know, keep those powers in check to make sure that that process stays the way it is. So it's, it's always this, this give, give and take. take, but that also carries a lot of pressure, mm -hmm. you know? And you need to learn when you work in my industry to manage and balance that pressure because all the networking that do, you do. Do you remember managing expectations? I do remember. <laughs> I use that. I use that in my daily conversation. I say that, you know, I actually tell people that my job is managing expectations. Yes. Yes. Because it ulti one. ultimately it is. That's what it I is. have to manage expectations of the regulators. I have to manage expectations yeah. of the private sector. Yeah. And the goal is to get them to sit somewhere in the middle and speak to each other, mm -hmm. you know, using the same language. Uh, because a lot of times they're not talking the same language yeah. or they're talking over each other or under each other. And, uh, and then you never get anything done. Yeah. So it is managing expectations either through research or through public advocacy. And then, you know, I speak at conferences uh, around the world and uh, mostly about regulation, obviously, given the nature of my job. But I, I also love that I get a chance to to express these issues and these topics to people. And I'm, I'm really excited when people come to me after and, Irwin, and say, you, hey, I learned something new do you, today. Do you ever get pushback sure. for your ideas and stuff like that? How do you deal with that? Like, What kind of pushback do you get? How do you deal with it? You know, Are there any well, negative notions out towards what you're doing at the European Blockchain Association? Look, the pushback you're going to get from the public sector is going to be usually along whether or not something is like politically justifiable at, mm -hmm. at that level. Um, institutions have obviously reasons why they do things and why they say things and why things are worded in the way that they're worded, right? And then it's your job to figure out whether or not that was just a, a mistake of interpretation or whether that was a politically motivated statement mm -hmm. and it was deliberate. Um, and so I, I can't say honestly that at the level of the EU, I've had pushback in terms of what we publish because we try to stay as objective as possible and we try not to berate or um, patronize anyone. Like the last thing I want to do is tell the government, you suck, you know, you don't know what you're doing because you're never going to get anything done that way. Listen, there's a lot of really smart people that work in these, in these institutions. I, I'm 
I can tell you that for a fact. And, uh, and there is also a lot of people that really want to get things done, but you have to understand, like, especially in the blockchain digital asset space, there's a huge knowledge gap. You know, this industry moves at a clip. And, uh, for example, like within the span of three, four years, what we call DeFi mm-hmm. is not what we call DeFi today. Yeah. What we call the crypto ecosystem in 2013, so far from what we call crypto today, it's not even funny, right? CBDCs were a thought experiment in 2015 right? Now, look at where they are. So this space, this industry, this technology moves at us at, you know, as close to the speed of light as you can get. And it's also hard for regulators to keep up with with this because there's a learning curve, just like it is for us in the private sector, right? So, you know, that's always something you got to keep in mind. Yeah, when it comes to pushback, what are some examples? What kind of pushback do you usually get? Um, I'd say some of the pushback I get is more so from the side of the community. Mm hmm. Uh, more than from from regulators, I think that, that there's so there's there's two schools in in the, in the digital asset community. You know, you have the diehard maxis, mm-hmm. and you have pragmatists. Diehard maxis, huh? Yeah, well, the maxis, yeah. a lot of them share very very orthodox libertarian views on the way that uh, mm-hmm. uh, the political economy needs to be organized, on the way that the monetary system needs to be organized, and on the and on the role of crypto and of digital assets and blockchain in that system. And then the pragmatists understand that there needs to be, you know, a give and take. There needs to be a dialogue. There needs to be a relationship. And at the end of the day, like the nation state isn't going to disappear overnight. And like it or not, you're going to have to find ways to work within the rules and the system that you have because you do not have a parallel society to just suddenly switch on and go Mm -hmm. to. And and I think it's also managing expectations between those two schools. I th- I'd say that's probably the hardest side of the job on the private sector. But look, if you present a good enough argument and you give everybody a chance to speak their voice, then I think that you can come to some sort of compromise most of the time. Got you. Erwin, usually what we like to do at the end of the Vesa Talks is I like to ask you a question. What's one question I didn't ask you that you would ask yourself? Oof. Dun, One dun, question. Dun, dun. <laughs> uh, where do I see the digital asset space? I don't know, in 50 years. All right, where do you see it in 50 years? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Um, look, I think that in, in the future, like the, the, the big bang moment is really going to come when, when you have blockchain, IoT, and artificial intelligence that can like seamlessly move together kind of like braid together Mm -hmm. and create the technical substrate for the future of the economy. Um, But I don't know exactly what that is going to look like. I just know that that combination of technologies Mm -hmm. and you can throw in uh, quantum computing in there as well. Yeah. It's power all that. Yeah. And post silicone technology right at the hardware level, this is going to be likely the future of our, of our monetary system and of our, and of our society. And um, I just hope that it's one where we're using these tools, right? Because technology is neutral. It's a tool. It depends on what you do with it. I just hope that we're using these tools for the greater good and not to our detriment. Mm-hmm. And how do you how do you feel about all that? Currently, um, you know when you flip a coin and it mm-hmm. lands standing up? Ooh. That's where I am right rough, now. Rough waters. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Erwin, it was a pleasure having you on the Vezza Talks podcast. Pleasure being here. Always glad to have you. Always happy talking to you. I always lear- I, Whenever I talk to you, I feel like I get 1% smarter. <laughs> well, <laughs> thank you. You humble me, but uh, you give me too much credit. <laughs>